The Wizard of Oz is considered one of the greatest American films ever made. And one of the most memorable scenes of the film is when the four hapless travelers finally encounter the great and powerful Oz in the Emerald City after overcoming countless difficulties to get there. They get there and this huge frightening image of the wizard with the big booming voice and the flames and the smoke and the giant chamber. They fill Dorothy and her companions with fear. They weren't prepared for what they are encountering there and they are sure that they have made a big mistake ever seeking out the wizard to begin with. They are now doomed for sure. But while they are quaking in their ruby slippers, Dorothy's little dog Toto pulls a curtain back to reveal a little old man working with some buttons and levers that control this giant projection of the Wizard of Oz they were all so terrified of. Who the Wizard of Oz actually turned out to be was vastly different from the projected image. It ended up being a little guy rather than this giant terrifying thing. Well, in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today, a similar kind of encounter is going to be taking place, but the opposite in how it plays out. Instead of discovering that the reality is a small measure of the projected image, the disciples will discover that the reality of Jesus is far greater and more glorious than they had ever imagined. So flip over to Matthew, and I said chapter 17, but we're actually going to look at the very last verse of 16 first. So verse 28 of Matthew 16 says, Truly, this is Jesus speaking, he says, Truly, I tell you, some, of, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, Jesus, he told his disciples that when he got to Jerusalem, he was going to be rejected by the religious leaders, suffer many things at their hands, and be killed. And then in Matthew 16, 24 through 27, which we looked at last time, Jesus told his disciples that anyone who follows him must give up their life for Jesus. Well, he follows those difficult teachings with this encouraging prediction that we have in this verse that some of the people standing there would not die before they see Jesus coming in his kingdom. Well, the question for us is, well, what is Jesus talking about here? The most likely and obvious event that Jesus is making reference to is what has come to be called the transfiguration, which is described in the very next verses. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So in Matthew chapter 17, beginning of verse 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So Jesus, he takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him up a mountain. And while they are there, all of a sudden, this very unusual thing happens. His appearance changes so that he looks glowing, dazzling white. And two people from long ago, 
Moses and Elijah appear and are talking with Jesus. The mountain they are on isn't identified. Given what is happening at the foot of the mountain when they return, they are probably somewhere back in Israelite territory rather than still in the north outside of Israel. The three disciples that Jesus takes with him here, Peter, James, and John, they're the inner circle disciples. It's the same three that were present when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Matthew 9. They are the same three who will be present with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying on the night before he's crucified in Matthew chapter 26. The transfiguration or the transformation of Jesus here is something that we can only guess about. His appearance, it says, is described as shining like the sun. He's white as light, dazzling white, whiter than white, bright as a flash of lightning, it says in one of the other Gospels. It reminds us of the description of the glory of the Lord that Moses encountered and then was shining on his face after he had been in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. Even the residual glory of the Lord shining from Moses' face was so intense that he had to wear a veil over his face when he was among the people, it said. It reminds us, too, of the description of God in 1 Peter 6.16, where it says that the Lord dwells in unapproachable light. Matthew and the other gospel writers they're using the best words that they can to try to describe the appearance of Jesus given their first century understanding of things. If Matthew was writing in our own day, he might have used different words to try to get across this out-of-this-world glorious appearance that Jesus has. What happened to Jesus on the mountain? The glory of God was shining forth from him and in him and around him, we are seeing the godness of Jesus shining through the humanness of Jesus. These two people who appear and speak with Jesus are Moses and Elijah. Mystery, excuse me, mystery surrounds the death of both of these men, you might remember. Neither one's body was ever found. According to Deuteronomy 34, God himself buried Moses. And in 2 Kings 2, it says that Elijah, he was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. Well, symbolically, Moses, he represents the old covenant law, the old way that God carried out a relationship with people. God, or I mean, Moses had been the one who received from God the Ten Commandments and the other laws that the Jewish people then built their society and their culture on after they had left Egypt and settled in the Promised Land, which would become Israel. Symbolically, Elijah represents the prophets, the spokesmen of God who predicted and proclaimed the coming of the Messiah and called the people to come to God and repent and be faithful to the Lord. Well, Jesus, he's the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word translated fulfill, it, it means to complete, to culminate, to provide the full meaning and significance. 
Moses and Elijah each had special encounters with God during their lifetimes. Moses had many encounters with God, but among them was the time that Moses was allowed to gaze upon the glory of the back of God as the Lord passed by him on the mountain. And it says that when Moses came back down the mountain to the people, they were afraid of Moses because his face was shining with that residual glory of God. I mean, it's just amazing to try to imagine what that might be. Well, Elijah, he also had an encounter with God on a mountain, on the mountain. First, there was this great wind, you remember, that tore the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And then it said there came an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake either. And then came fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. Finally, there was the sound of a gentle whisper from which God spoke to Elijah. Well, now these same two men are speaking with Jesus, who has the same appearance that God is described having. So the picture that we have here is of these two great men of God from the past once more speaking with God. The difference this time is that God the Son is on earth and they have come to speak with Him here rather than God descending to speak with them during their own days on the earth. Jesus is the center of all of human history. He's the grand pivot point around which everything else turns. Everything before Jesus looked forward to His coming and everything after Jesus looks back to his coming. And this mysterious moment in history that takes place on this mountain is like a wrinkle in the space-time continuum, a window into the eternal realm, a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak, where we get to see the glory of Jesus, God the Son. What we see here is the opposite of what happened in the Wizard of Oz. In the Wizard of Oz, when the curtain was pulled back, it revealed this little old man pulling levers and pushing some buttons, creating this huge, terrifying, godlike representation through the use of special effects. In the Transfiguration, we have the glory of the eternal God breaking through the human shroud or curtain, giving us a glimpse of the mystery, the majesty, the power, the holiness of the Son of God. In the Wizard of Oz, we see that the truth behind the wizard was just a man. In the Transfiguration, we see that the truth behind the man, Jesus, is the glorious, almighty God that he really is. When verse 4 Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter, in typical Peter fashion, he responds impulsively, and he blurts out the first thing that pops into his head. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation? Unexpectedly, you are in the middle of something very big happening around you, and instead of saying something intelligent, or better yet, just keeping your mouth shut, <laughs> you say something stupid. 
Well, that's Peter. In modern vernacular, Peter says here, thank goodness James, John, and I were here to witness what has just happened. This is a historic moment. We need to do something. Let's build three shrines to mark this place as holy ground to be remembered and revered by people for generations to come. Well, there are some problems with what Peter is proposing to do. First, Peter shows that he still doesn't understand yet the full significance of who Jesus is. Peter, wanting to build three shrines, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, is essentially putting them all on the same level. Peter may be thinking this would be a tremendous honor for Jesus to be counted among these great men. Peter may be thinking he's elevating the status of Jesus by including him among these two. But these three, they're not equals. They're not even in the same category. Jesus is the fulfillment, the culmination, the completion of the work of these other two men. Jesus is who they were pointing to and preparing for and hoping in. Jesus is their Lord. These two are worshiping Jesus. He is God the Son, far above all power and authority. Second, Peter, he's jumping the gun a little bit. The, transfigur the transfiguration, it, it's not the culmination of the work of Jesus. Yet. It's just a small stepping stone along the way. This is not the destination. Jerusalem still awaits, and all that comes with that, the rejection, the arrest, the suffering, the torturing, the killing, and then the resurrection and the real glorification that follows all of it. It's not time to celebrate. There's still lots of very hard work left for Jesus to do before the party happens. The party's going to happen one day. The marriage supper of the Lamb is going to take place. We look forward to it, but it isn't yet. Third, Peter, he wants to prolong this experience by building shrines. And the problem is we, we tend to enshrine our past experiences and dwell there rather than keep moving forward, seeking after new experiences that, that God has for us. Those were the good old days. That was when God was really moving among us. That was the time when God was doing great things in my life. That's all good, but we can't live on yesterday's experiences. We need to actively seek after the Lord every day. We need to have a new adventure with the Lord today rather than relying on the stories of yesterday's adventures. Remembering the past is good. Living there is not. Jesus wants us to live with him and for him now. Verse 8, I mean verse 5. While he was still speaking, when Pete, while Peter was still speaking, 
A bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So it says, the voice of God the Father spoke from this cloud, declaring Jesus to be his son who he loves. And this is the same declaration that the Father made about Jesus at his baptism back in Matthew 3. He says, listen to him. Listen to him. God the Father tells the disciples to listen to Jesus, pay attention to Jesus and follow him. Thinking back to the Wizard of Oz again, instead of saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, God is saying, pay attention to the God who became a man to save you. The command to listen to Jesus is for us in our day too, isn't it? And the word listen, it's an interesting word. Because we can hear what someone says to us without really listening to them. God the Father doesn't tell us to simply hear His Son. He tells us to listen to His Son. The kind of listening that God is talking about involves the hearing of what is said and then actually acting upon it. When God the Father says to listen to Jesus, He's telling us to do what Jesus says. Do what he says. James talks about that same idea in his letter. In James 1.22, James said, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I want us to notice the contrast between Peter's desire to build shrines to commemorate this event and God the Father telling Peter and us to listen to Jesus. Because this contrast, it highlights a common uh, issue that human beings suffer from in their relationship with God. We would rather follow the outward expressions of devotion to God rather than do what he says. We would rather take hold of the outward expressions of devotion, building shrines, following religious rites, uh, the external signs of commitment to God, then actually commit ourselves to obeying God's word. The Lord's saying to us, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen to my son and do what he says is better than building shrines in his honor. The Lord wants us to live our life in obedience to Him and His Word and not just go through religious motions. How do we listen to Jesus in our own day? Well, the main way, there, there are other ways, but the main way we listen to Jesus is through His teachings, which have been written down for us and are found in the Bible. Reading and doing what's taught in the Bible is how we listen to Jesus. Now, I want to clarify something 
for us here. The, the teachings of Jesus in the Bible, they include the whole Bible, not just the red letter spots. His teachings include more than just the words that are indicated as quotations of him talking in conversation in the four gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For example, the epistles written by Paul, they're also the teachings of Jesus. I mean, where do we think Paul got that stuff? He got it from Jesus. It's all Jesus. Whether Paul or Peter or James or Luke is the one who wrote down the words. Jesus is the living Word of God, and the Bible is the written Word of God. And this is how we listen to Jesus. Verse 9 says, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So Jesus, he tells the disciples not to tell anyone what they have seen take place on the mountain. Why? Well, we've, we've talked about this before because he's given in this, them and others the same kind of instruction before. The popular ideas at the time about the Messiah were not in alignment with the intentions and mission of God for the Messiah. Jesus didn't want to fuel the flames of these misguided ideas that many in those days had about the Messiah who wanted to start a revolution against the Romans and force Jesus to be their king. That would have been a huge distraction from Jesus' real mission. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now, before we talk about that question, I mean, just a really interesting observation for us to make here is I think it's interesting that they don't ask him the question that really ought to cause us to go, what? And that's this one about him being raised from the dead. Because that had never happened before, and he's talking about that. And we notice that it's almost like they don't ever hear that. It's like, right, rising from the dead. Okay, let's just ignore that part, because we don't know what he's talking about, and it just sounds really out there. But it says that after he raised from the dead, then they remembered that he had told them again and again, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're always like, going, yeah, like, so anyway... Uh, this thing about Elijah. And so they ask about Elijah. The common belief among people in those days was that the prophet Elijah would come first to prepare the way uh, as a forerunner for the Messiah. And then in verse 11, Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking with them about John the Baptist. So Jesus says the teachers of the law were right about Elijah coming first, and in fact he's already come, he says. But they didn't recognize him. Rather than welcoming him as forerunner of the Messiah, they opposed him. 
And the religious leaders are going to do the same with Jesus. In fact, they are doing the same with Jesus. Rather than welcoming him, recognizing him, they're opposing him. And they will eventually have him killed. We have that last verse that the disciples, they finally realize when he's explaining this, that Jesus is talking about John the Baptist being Elijah who prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. We're going to stop there this morning. And in closing, I just want to bring us back around to the story of the transfiguration for a moment. The Greek word that's translated transfigured or transformed, referring to this transformation of Jesus that the disciples see take place on the mountain. It's the same word that's used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, referring to the transformation that the Lord is doing in us, who are followers of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul wrote, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is transforming us, transfiguring us into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. It's like there's a little transfiguration taking place in every single one of us as we walk with the Lord. As his good work in us is revealed, it shows one degree of glory to another degree of glory until the final day when his finished work in us will be fully realized and revealed. And when they pull back the curtain of your life to reveal the you that the Lord has created, they won't be saying, pay no attention to that person behind the curtain. Instead, there will be shouts of praise and glory given to the Lord for what he's made. Think about that this week. What he's doing in you. The transfiguring of you that he's doing. The transforming of you that he's doing in Christ. Especially Think about that as life is beating you down. What we see now is only a glimpse of the glory to be revealed. I close with 2 Corinthians 4.16, a little further into that same letter. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your good word. And we thank you that you have preserved your word all of these centuries. We thank you that you have preserved this story that we've read today about the transfiguration of your son Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the promise 
you're transfiguring us even now as we walk with you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people this week. You would remind them of how precious they are to you and that you're doing an amazing thing inside of them. Fill us with your wonder, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.